Hello, good morning, everybody. Special welcome to those of you who are watching online with us. We're always so glad to have you. Make sure you give a shout out in the comments so that we know uh, that you're here worshiping with us this morning and can give you a welcome. Um, and special welcome to those of you who are worshiping here in person with us this morning, too. Uh, I just am so excited and happy to have some of the kiddos back. For those of you who are in person, you can hear uh, that they're here, and then some of the older ones are downstairs doing Sunday school. And man, it just feels good to have uh, more of the church family kind of all together. So it's a good day to be worshiping uh, this morning. So we're going to continue our uh, sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes, kind of in our wisdom series. And before we jump in, I wanted to ask, who here has felt decision fatigue at some point in the last year? Yeah, if you haven't, I teach me your ways, because, man, have I definitely felt that. Uh, it's been a year of making a lot of decisions that have been felt really big and really difficult to answer. Things like, should I go back to working in the office or stay at home? Should I see my family over the holidays? Should I send my kids back to daycare or keep them at home? It's just been a lot. And then even beyond that, it's just the daily decisions of like, what do I feel comfortable with during this pandemic? And so if you haven't felt tired of decisions, like I said, I'm amazed. I'm very impressed. Teach me all of your uh, wisdom. (laughs) But I think a lot of us have felt that over the last year. And today we're going to talk a little bit about decision making. So I felt like it was a good, it almost feels like a good day to talk about it on kind of this like anniversary of the one year of feeling the stress of all these decisions. Uh, And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we look in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you're just joining us this morning, if it's your first time, we are doing kind of a series through wisdom. Just what is wisdom? What, how do we seek it? What does that look like? And we're do, going through a couple of different books of the Bible. Uh, and earlier we did Proverbs. We kind of talked through some of those. And if you read Proverbs, Proverbs is kind of like the optimist of the wisdom literature, right? Do these things and things will go well for you. And as we've talked about, as we've gotten deeper into Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is anything but that. It's the cynical, the realist, uh, and let's be honest, the teacher who kind of is the one speaking in Ecclesiastes has a pretty bleak outlook on life a lot of the time. And today his big beef or his critique that he's making is that everything in life just feels kind of random. He says, you can't control anything, and you never know when things are going to happen, and it feels like it's all sort of just left up to chance. So he wants to know, what do we do with that? How do we, how do we process that and deal with it? So let's jump in. The passage I'm going to read is going to probably sound a little bit familiar to some of you, just because it's used often in things other than scripture. Um, It's often quoted in different places, including a very popular song from the 60s called Turn, Turn, Turn. Uh, You might like start to hear it in your head as I read this, but we're going to jump in. We're going to look at Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 10. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, 
a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. If that doesn't feel like COVID, I don't know what does. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So the teacher in Ecclesiastes, he's saying there's a time for everything, right? He covers a lot of different topics there. Planting, uprooting, mourning, dancing, keeping and throwing away. Marie Kondo would be very proud. Uh, but, and he tends to cite all these different opposites, right? A time to love and hate. Time for war and peace. Birth and death. And if you read Hebrew poetry, this is sort of a, a figure of speech or a literary device that they would often use to sort of signify completeness. So it was like, if you list the first thing and the last thing, you're sort of covering everything in between, all the things that go with it. So he's literally saying that everything, everything that happens on earth, everything under the sun, everything from life to death, from start to finish, has a specific time and a specific season. Sounds like a positive thing, right? Especially if you are the type of person who likes order, you like to organize things, you like to know um, where everything goes and a place for everything and everything in its place. Sounds really great. But the teacher goes on to say, this is actually kind of a burden to the human race because while there's a time and place for everything, we can't ever know exactly when each place and time is. He says, no one can fathom what God is doing from beginning to end. He says, God knows the right time and place for all these things, but we don't always know. We can't know exactly when someone will be born or when they will die. We can estimate, right, and give due dates, but those are not always accurate. We can't always know when to keep searching for something and when to give up and declare that it's lost. I literally just did this something. I thought something was lost, and so I bought a new one, and then the day it came in the mail, I found the old one. It just always happens every time. And we can't even know when to speak and when to just close our mouths. I think everybody can kind of relate to that. So we blunder around trying to make decisions on everything in life from big things like bringing new life into the world to small decisions and whether or not we should keep that sweater in our closet that we never wear. And I think this is why some people uh, are just so frustrated with making all of these decisions. There's a specific time and a place, and we can feel that. We can know that it feels like everything should have a season, but we can't always know when it is. It can be so frustrating to know that that's how God created the world. That's how things are supposed to be. They're supposed to be ordered and not chaotic, and yet we never know exactly what the order is. It's like having all the pieces to a puzzle, but not being able to put them together. So how do we get here? Why is this so difficult? And I think to understand that, we actually have to go back to the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the story of God and his people, and that's in Genesis. So we're going to look at chapter 3 a little bit today to see how did humans end up in this predicament where we feel this eternity in our hearts. We can know that God has his time and place for everything, and yet we can't always exactly pinpoint what it is. 
So in the beginning, Adam and Eve are created to live in perfect harmony with God and with other people. And God places them in this garden. And it's beautiful. It has tons and tons of trees that are good and have lots of food on them. Uh, Probably food like figs and olives and pomegranates and grapes. And there are two trees in the middle of this garden. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the couple is free to eat from any of the trees, all the hundreds of trees, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's where the serpent comes in. So I'm going to read Genesis 3, 1 through 7 with a little commentary here. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman says to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. So the serpent comes to Eve with this sort of devious question, right? You can even just see it in the way he asks it, that he's, he's trying to trick her. He says, did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees? Which is very far from what God actually said to Eve. And to her credit, she is quick to correct him. She says, no, God says we can eat from any of them except for one. So the serpent comes back. He's like, all right, that didn't work. What can I try next? You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he jumps in and says, well, the only reason you're not supposed to eat from that tree is because it'll make you like God. You know, you'll know good from bad. Doesn't that sound appealing? (laughs) Being like God, being able to know good from bad when the right time is, being in control like God is. I know we give Eve a hard time sometimes, but if we're being honest, that sounds really appealing to us. It would be really nice to know those things. So in the story, it says that the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So she takes it hoping to gain wisdom, hoping to know good from bad, hoping to be like God. But the problem is is that the serpent wasn't quite uh, exactly telling the truth. Because what Adam and Eve really do is they stop relying on God for their wisdom and they try to take it for themselves. Tim Mackey, a theologian, makes the point that everywhere in the Bible when the term knowing good and bad shows up, kind of that phrase, it's always talking about children in moral infancy. So children who don't know how to make decisions for themselves yet, right? If you have a child or if you've ever been around a child, you can understand this. They don't understand, you know, don't touch things that are hot. Don't put your fingers in outlets. Don't do the things that are are bad for you because they just can't figure that out yet. They're not old enough. They haven't grown enough to know those different things. And the same was true for Adam and Eve, it seems like. They wanted to do it on... they. You know, God has said, don't eat from this tree for knowing good and bad, and kind of implying that they are in some state of moral infancy. But instead, Adam and Eve decide, we would like to do it on our own. We would like to be independent. We want to be like God, and we want to be able to choose good and bad for ourselves. But the problem is they weren't ready. They still needed to rely on God for their understanding of good and bad, and we do too. 
Hannah Anderson, in her book, All That's Good, a book all about discernment, says, In turning from God, however, in removing themselves from the source of goodness, they encountered evil for the first time. But instead of making them wise, it made them foolish. And now aware of both good and evil, they found they could not distinguish between the two. So this is where we are, right? We're all kind of stuck with this problem now. Uh, And it honestly sounds a little bit like the problem that the teacher in Ecclesiastes is observing. We want to make the right choice. We want to know good from bad, but we can't always. We're bad at it, and it's frustrating to us. The situation we find ourselves in sort of reminds me of how like, different of an experience it would be to grow up with a smartphone compared to growing up without one. Uh, I recently read this article called 30 Teenagers Wishing They Were Born in the 90s Will Make You Feel Ancient. <laughs> and as someone who was born in the 90s, Wow, it really did make me feel old. Uh, These kids are like lamenting the fact that they wish they had been born in the 90s. Not even just grown up in the 90s, but born in the 90s. Um, And some of the responses were funny about like the fashion or the music. But a lot of them really talked about cell phones. And they mentioned technology and all of the ways it's made growing up way more complicated for them. They keep saying things like, man, it just seemed like a simpler time back then. Because growing up with a cell phone, I can imagine that would be really hard. I mean, it was hard enough going to school on Monday morning and hearing about how your friends went and saw the Lizzie McGuire movie without you. Any of you other 90s babies can maybe relate to me. Uh, But to see it all while it's happening, uh, playing out on social media and having to be constantly aware of what everybody else is doing and constantly feeling like you need to show everybody else what you're doing, that's hard. They have a lot more options. They have a lot more choices that they need to make at a much younger age than what maybe they should. So it's kind of like Adam and Eve forced us all to get cell phones before we were ready, right? It was like, here you go. Now you have all of these choices to make and you don't necessarily have the skills or you're not necessarily equipped to make them. We know that there are good and bad choices. We know that there's a season for everything, but we feel ill-equipped often to make those decisions. And it can be seriously paralyzing for some people. I think some of us, you know, will make lists and overanalyze and spend hours making every decision. And then on the other hand, some of us don't know what decisions to make because it all feels overwhelming, so we just don't do anything. And then some of us just pick random things because we're like, it's going to be hard to make the decision anyways, so I'm just going to jump in, pick something, and go with it without really thinking about it. The teacher in Ecclesiastes says, God gives us eternity in our hearts, but his plans always feel out of reach. It's frustrating, I know, but I think it's actually a good thing. Uh, And I think that the teacher in Ecclesiastes, he sees that God does this for a reason. He doesn't think it's random that God has made things this way. In verse 14, he says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. At first, this might not sound positive, right? That God would do something that's so frustrating to us because he wants us to fear him. And we often think of fear in like a negative way, like it's a bad thing. Um, But as we talked about, if you were here for the Proverbs series, fear of the Lord is actually the thing that leads us to wisdom. 
And here we mean fear like awe and reverence. We don't mean fear like I'm terrified and I you know, can't handle it. But it's like you're really uh, in awe of something because it's so amazing. And that fear, that fear of the Lord will lead us to wisdom. The one thing we want, right? The thing that's going to help us make right choices. So if the teacher in Ecclesiastes is right, God giving us this desire in our hearts to make the right choices, it isn't a curse, it's actually a gift, a way to pull us back to him, to help us make the choice that Adam and Eve failed to make, to rely on God for his wisdom and not try to take it for ourselves. It's almost like God has given us a fail-safe inside of us that brings us back to him and brings us back to his wisdom and fear of the Lord. Because when we consistently walk with Jesus, when we consistently seek him, when we read his word, when we listen to the Holy Spirit, over time we start to develop a better sense for what is good. We're able to distinguish a little bit more between good and bad. Adam and Eve didn't have the moral maturity to make these decisions, and we don't either, unless we develop it by spending time with Jesus. Through relying on God and learning from him, we learn wisdom and discernment. Uh, You can think about it this way. Hannah Anderson says, discernment simply means developing a taste for what is good. Discernment simply means developing a taste for what is good. And developing a taste for something takes time. Let's take coffee, for example. I started working at a coffee shop when I was 16. And you can imagine, at 16, I was drinking like the super sugary, whipped cream topped, like crazy drinks that we made up while we were working there. Um, And then as I got older in college, I started drinking just regular black coffee because had to stay awake, had to get stuff done. Um, But because I was a college student, I was buying like the cheap black coffee (laughs) Folgers or whatever. And then since college, I've continued to work in different coffee shops over the years, and I've learned different uh, types of coffee that I like better. I've learned um, that like what it tastes like when it's a French press or a pour over, all these different things, light roast or dark roast. I can now tell the difference between cheap coffee and expensive coffee. I've become a more discerning coffee drinker because I've continued to drink a lot of coffee. I'm developing a taste for what is good by doing that over time and continuing to go back to it. And that takes a lot of cups of coffee. And similarly, if we want to be wise or develop a good sense of what is good in God's eyes, it's going to take us time. It's going to take us continually going back to him and relying on him to show us what is good and what is wise. It will conform us to his image. It'll bring us back to him and bring us closer to the way we were created, the way Adam and Eve were created to live in entire reliance on God instead of trying to take things for themselves. And ultimately, our continued growth in character, our continued growth in Christ-likeness will be important in, it's going to be way more important than any single decision we make. I think sometimes we get caught up in thinking that our decisions define who we are. If if I take this job, if I do this thing, it's going to define me. It's going to change me and, and be a big part of who I am. But the honest truth is that who we are, what our character is, is what ultimately drives our decisions. And no matter what decision you make, 
you're taking that character with you. No matter what you do, you're always going to be who you are. I know it's a little, like, you have to, like, think about it, right? It's a little bit of a mind game. But our, our character, our, who we are, how Christ-like we are, what we're doing with that is going to drive how we make decisions, and we're going to bring that with us no matter what decision we make. Whatever job we take, whatever path we choose, who we are is still going to be there. So it's really the more important thing. And I think a lot of times we get so caught up in making decisions that we forget to pull back and focus on character, to focus on relying on God, to becoming uh, like him so that no matter what circumstance we end up in, no matter how hard things get, we have that rock-solid foundation of relying on Christ. Because there are a lot of amoral decisions, so decisions that are like not right or wrong, but there's not going to be some um, moral consequence if you choose one or the other. There's a lot of amoral decisions that we have to make every day, and we often get really worked up about these things. When really, God doesn't care all that much about what choice we make, as long as we're seeking him in whatever we do. As long as our motive behind our decisions is to glorify him and to follow him in everything that we do. I truly believe that God cares more about our hearts and about if we're loving our neighbors or sharing the good news of Jesus with others uh, than he cares about which job we take or whether or not we put our kid in daycare. But I think we often treat wisdom uh, like a kid going to a parent for 20 bucks, right? We're like, hey, can you please give me wisdom on this thing because I want to know what's going to be the right choice, what's going to like, make my life the easiest, what's going to be most comfortable, uh, what's going to lead to the best options for me. And then once you get the answer, you're like, cool, thanks, God, I'm going to go do my thing. If we're honest with ourselves, we want to feel in control. We want to feel like God, the same way Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. But what he wants for us is to draw near to him, to become like him, to rely on him, to seek him, and to serve him in everything we do. Jen Wilkin had this great quote uh, kind of about wisdom and how we, how we approach it. She says, Much of our prayers are requests to walk by sight, prayers like, tell me what to do, versus by faith, help me be like Christ no matter the circumstances. Faith gives certainty of relationship with God, not of next steps or outcomes. She goes on to say, I don't mean to say that we never ask God what to do or request a specific outcome. We certainly can but we do so trusting he is good no matter what versus putting his goodness to the test. Our motive matters. And if we're honest with ourselves, our motives are more often mixed, right? And that's okay. It's something we're all going to be working through. We want to do the right thing partly because we want to serve God and we want to follow him and partly because we want our lives to be easy and comfortable and to know that we're making the right choice. So let's use those moments in our lives, those confusing times, those frustrating things, to feel the frustration of the teacher of Ecclesiastes, to fuel fear of the Lord, awe of God who knows all, who knows when each thing is supposed to take place in each season, to draw us closer to him. And we can do this because Jesus sacrificed everything to come near to us in order to make it possible for us to be near to him. 
After Adam and Eve messed things up in the garden, and after every human, including you and me, has continued to mess things up since then, continued to try to take wisdom for ourselves instead of relying on God for it, God still came near to us. He came in the form of a human and experienced the same frustrations we feel. He died on the cross to make it possible for us to be back in right relationship with him. He takes the penalty for all of our failures, all the times we wanted to be like God and to use our wisdom, uh, and all the times we will in the future. And he makes it possible for us to be forgiven and redeemed and restored. Hebrews 4 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus felt all the same frustrations that we do. He can empathize with our weakness and our confusion, but he never tried to take wisdom for himself. In fact, we see this clearly when Jesus is in a different garden than Adam and Eve, the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he dies on the cross. And he spent time with God the Father, praying, pouring out his thoughts and emotions before him. But instead of saying, God, what should I do? What's going to be the best option for me? How will I know if I made the right choice? He lets God know. He says, hey, if there's another way to do this, I'd prefer that. But ultimately, thy will be done. More than anything else, I want to follow you and choose your wisdom over seeking it for myself. He could have said, hey, this whole being God thing and having all these followers and doing these cool miracles and all these things, it's been really fun. And I think I could still really like help out people by doing these things. I could go heal some more people and I could, you know, I could stay here. I could do all these things. Instead of doing that, instead of taking wisdom for himself, he says, thy will be done. He follows God. He's obedient to him, even to death on the cross. And through that, while it was painful for Jesus, he opened up the way for all of us to be forgiven and redeemed and to follow God. He makes it possible for us to choose to rely on God for our wisdom instead of trying to take it for ourselves. And hopefully that's freeing for you as well. You don't have to stress over every single decision and focus so much on making the right choice in every situation. God's not waiting for you to make the right or wrong choice so he can punish you or bless you. It's not how it works. We have freedom to choose, and all God asks is that we would choose him above everything else. So before we close, there's one more thing we have to deal with in this whole Ecclesiastes passage. Because we're talking about that, we have to ask, what does the teacher say? Right? You guys hear my response. But what does the teacher of Ecclesiastes say about how there's a time and place for everything and yet it's all very confusing? Well, his response to all the frustration and not knowing is to say, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. So he says, just eat, drink, enjoy your work. It sounds a little bit like YOLO, right? Like just, you know, you only live once, do whatever you want. But I think there's actually more to it. I think it kind of fits with what we're talking about here about discernment, about seeking Jesus and moving closer to him and relying on his wisdom instead of our own. I quoted Hannah Anderson earlier when I was talking about discernment, um, about how it's just developing a taste for what's good. 
So if we're taking notice of and enjoying the good things in life, like the teacher in Ecclesiastes says, then it should lead us closer to God. It should help us develop discernment. Uh, In her book, Hannah Anderson describes it sort of like grooves on a record. And if you are a Gen Zer and you don't know what a record is, because apparently I am very old, uh, it's this thing that played music that had little like grooves and lines. And they all, as you kind of circled it, as the needle on the record player circled it, it led towards the center. And she talks about how the good things in life, the good things that we get to see and experience and feel and taste and see, should lead us to know that God is good. It should lead us closer and closer towards that center in the record, bringing us to Jesus, bringing us to know that he is the creator of all things and that he is good and he has created good things for us. So yes, part of seeking God's wisdom can mean enjoying the good things on earth. That's a great thing, right? You don't have to feel guilty enjoying good things, but just don't use them as a means to an end. Don't use them just for yourself to feel good for a minute or to distract or to numb or whatever it is. Use them to see the good in the world, the good that God has created, and lead us back to Jesus, to praise, to worship him. And as we do that, that helps us also develop discernment. It helps us develop that taste for what is good, for what Jesus has done in the world uh, and the beauty that he has created. So as we close today and kind of head into that time of worship and reflection and communion, I want you to reflect on where are you trying to take wisdom for yourself instead of relying on God to transform you, right? This is the big thing that Adam and Eve struggled with, and it's the thing that Jesus did for us. He's paved a way for us to rely on God for wisdom instead of trying to take it on our own. So think about it. How can you use the frustrations of not knowing to fuel fear of the Lord? Or how can you use the good things in life to lead you to praise and worship and help you develop that taste for what's good? How can you rely on him more fully? So we're going to transition into this time of worship and communion. Um, And as we take communion, I would just encourage you to think about Jesus Um, it's really helpful for me to think about the things Jesus has gone through and know that he can relate to us in the frustrations we feel. So I encourage you to think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Think about him struggling with those decisions and yet ultimately choosing to rely on God, to go to the cross for us so that we could be redeemed and restored uh, through him to God. So as we take communion, I invite you to reflect on that um, and then I'm going to pray for us, and we'll head into that time of worship. Father, we thank you that even though we have continually tried to take wisdom for ourselves, we've continually refused to rely on you, that you still came near to us. You still sent your son to be obedient to you and to follow you and listen to your words, to choose your wisdom over his own and to uh, follow that obedience all the way to the cross. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for the times that we have turned from you, and we confess that we do this all too often. But we thank you and praise you for the gift of your Son and the way that you have made us uh, for us to be redeemed and restored as we celebrate that as we take communion together. In your name we pray. Amen.